Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the only podcast offering unfiltered guidance and direct advice for all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioners in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I am your host, Frank LaRosa, and I am joined here by um, a great guest who's been on the podcast before, Brian Neville. Brian is the founder and managing partner of Lax & Neville, a securities firm in New York City, and I would say arguably probably the best in the business. So, Brian, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good morning. Awesome, Frank. Happy awesome. to be back on the podcast. Awesome. Great. So for those of you joining us, we wanted to give sort of an advisor, like a legal perspective on a bunch of different topics. So this is going to be a series we're going to run. It's going to be six to eight different topics because there's so much that goes into the legal side of transitions and different things that I think that people tend to brush over it and not think about these things ahead of time. And then when something happens, it's the horse has already left the barn and they it's hard to unwind certain things. And so, Brian, what I wanted to do today is really just cover one topic that actually for me just came up recently with a client and it has to do with the difference between a non-solicit in a client agreement versus a non-protocol agreement. And sort of like the types of restricted covenants that you've seen from a legal side and how you generally see those things being handled the right way. And the goal here is always to give some advice to advisors listening to help them avoid the pitfalls and a lot of times making silly mistakes that end up costing yeah. them a lot of money. And so happens, happens all the time. We get retained a couple times every year by people who have made the mistakes and it's too late and it gets very expensive. So I think this is a great topic. First, I'd like to always just give a little disclaimer that I'm not giving anyone specific legal advice here because I don't have their agreement and I don't know their facts and circumstances, but it is fairly easy to talk about a good bit of this stuff in broad general terms. And most people in financial services have an employment agreement, and then they'll have other agreements that have restrictive covenants. It could be a stock agreement where you're getting stock through the company. It could be a deferred compensation plan. The vast majority of people that are in financial services will have these agreements with at least three types of restrictions. And they're all relevant to a transition. So there'll be a restriction on taking confidential information. And firms in those agreements will define confidential information very broadly. They'll find it even more broadly than most state laws will allow them to. And they'll frequently seek to enforce it when an advisor leaves. So confidential information is also covered, as you know, Frank, as a former branch office manager, by regulations like SEC regulation SP says firms have to put in privacy policies and you have to protect clients from identity theft and such. So that's why most firms have pretty strict protections over clients' information. But where the rubber hits the road on a lot of these, Frank, as you know, in a transition is things like clients' contact information. And in post-COVID world, almost every financial advisor has a cell phone with their client's cell phones in it, and they'll frequently have the email addresses in there. And I think most clients don't consider that information confidential. Most advisors don't consider it confidential, and yet some firms do. So when you're doing a transition, you need to have an understanding of what your existing firm's take on that is, 
And you also need to be aware of what the firm that you're going to be transitioning to considers confidential. And that all needs to be discussed, understood, and put in place well before a move. That's not something to start talking about two weeks before. Similarly, the other restrictive covenant is frequently, as you mentioned, the non-solicit. And if you're in a protocol move, as you know, the protocol obviates that. But if you're not moving from protocol to protocol firm, a non-solicit in most states is generally enforceable. The laws in every state are slightly different. And the best example that we could use on your show here today would be California. California has a public policy of saying these non-solicits are generally unenforceable. So financial advisors in California have a much easier situation than advisors in, in most other states. But the industry has also taken a position and has kind of come out with, uh, like FINRA has come out with regulatory notices, really saying that if a client asks a reassigned advisor where the advisor has gone, that advisor now has to give that information. FINRA has taken positions that restrict firms' ability to get temporary restraining orders halting ACATs. And most states have adopted the law through case law saying that because you're a fiduciary, because you're a trusted financial advisor, the clients that you service are entitled to notice that you've moved from firm A to firm B. Most state laws take the position that that notice is not a solicitation, despite how broadly that the non-solicitation might be defined in the employment agreement. And the industry norm, I think for the vast majority of firms, is that a notice call is not violative of a non-solicit. And then there's also other restrictive covenants, Frank, on not soliciting employees. And that doesn't really come into play for teams, but these restrictive covenants result in litigation that we all see every year. And I think that the vast majority of advisors that find themselves getting sued have made mistakes and have done things that go too far. You know, we all read in Advisor Hub and in all the different publications, some of the more salacious, silly, stupid things people have done and the allegations against them. And a lot of times it's things that probably are getting blown out of proportion in the pleadings. But one of the things I've said working with you, working with others is you just really need to plan ahead so you're not the team that's being made an example of. There was a case recently filed where the firm went through every document that the advisor had printed out. And there was a lot of stuff that was printed out that just looked suspicious. One of them was a review of portable scanning devices. And so you shouldn't be printing anything from your work printer leading into a transition that you wouldn't want your former manager to view as suspicious. And COVID has made a lot of things like that more difficult, of course, because the way firms protect what you can do at home and what you can't do. Another big mistake that we've seen folks making is emailing substantial client information from their work email to their personal email. Yeah, and That is a practice that was tolerated by most firms during COVID because you had to do it to service your clients. And it's something that maybe advisors are thinking, well, this is a new norm and it's tolerated. But then when you make a transition, it's not tolerated and firms take a negative view of it. So As a former manager, I know you've seen a lot of advisors doing some stuff that makes them a more likely target of litigation. But the goal in a transition would be... Yeah, well, like an example, you use that printing example. What I always tell advisors is if you printed stuff and you did, it's too late. You already printed them. The best advice that I can give them is leave whatever they printed right on their credenza or in the back drawer. So when they do pull and advisors don't know that 
you can pull print reports. When they do pull the print report and they say, hey, you printed 800 pages of whatever. And if your attorney, and you should always be represented by an attorney, says, yeah, well, he left them or he, she left them on the back credenza, they're right there. That goes over much better than saying, oh, he shredded them. Because yep. no one ever believes you actually shredded them. They believe you took them out. But if you leave them there, at least they'll have a harder time proving, well, you left them there, but then you made photocopies of them. That is one of the classic ones. And it's gotten to the point now that I 100% agree with that advice. I tell people when they're leaving documents that they've printed out, take a photo of it from a distance. So it's not like you actually can read it, but you can see the stack of documents. They're all there. Right. We've even to the point of customized some resignation letters saying that they've left all the materials that were printed and, and they're right and designate. They're on the top of the desk. They're in here. They're there. And we have a photograph of it to prove it. So yeah, the print cues are studied to see if there's any inappropriate information being taken. So let me ask you a question and go back to uh, this non-solicit because I met with somebody the other day and they had a non-solicit. They're not sure if the firm's in protocol or not. We're going to check on that. And you mentioned this whole this fiduciary responsibility to them to at least let the clients know, have a notice that they are not there anymore. So can you give an example of what that might be? And what's your opinion on Maybe this is a leading question, but I'm leading the witness. An email versus a phone call versus a message versus a Facebook message. What's your opinion and what would you recommend as the best type of notification? It's interesting because the word that you came out there, which is the best, and what I would say is actually you need to look at it on a risk scale. So if you do, and this used to be done a lot in the industry, and it's a little old-fashioned, if you do like a fancy announcement on high-grade paper, and it's just an announcement, and it simply says, Brian Neville has left Firm A, he's proud to be at Firm B, here's his contact information. That's the safest because it, no one can misconstrue it. It is what it is. It's just an announcement. There's no solicitation. And you can't even put a brochure about the new firm in the envelope. You just, just that, nothing more. So that's safest. And then the next safest would be where you have a script that is the same thing as that announcement and you follow it to the T and you take notes. And what a lot of firms will do if they're the receiving firm, they want to supervise that process to minimize their litigation risk. So they'll have a supervisor sit in on a large percentage of those outgoing phone calls so that they could truthfully testify or swear out an affidavit that they supervised these outgoing notice calls and there was no solicitation and they can take notes on what the customers asked because in most notice phone calls, when someone is a trusted advisor and has been playing that important role for a client, clients will tend to ask a series of questions. What happens next? Oh, tell me why now? What prompted this? And an advisor can answer all client questions as long as they do so truthfully and in a fair and balanced way that is not a solicitation. So if a client, for example, says, what's going to happen next? You'd have to say, well, because I've left, old firm is going to reassign your accounts under their account redistribution policy. A new advisor will be in touch with you and they will seek to service your account. And then typically a customer would say, but what if I don't want that? What if I want to follow you? 
And then you would say, well, thank you. It's an honor. I'm glad you asked. If you do want to follow me, here's the procedure. And then you explain the account transfer procedure. None of that is a solicitation. If you have a good transition team and a good supervisor at a new firm, I think a lot of times advisors get a little bit upset or they chafe at this idea of someone's watching them. But this is truly for their protection because now it's not just one person's sworn testimony that they didn't solicit. It's the advisors and it's a supervisor from the new firm. And typically that supervisor will have a set of notes and a policy and procedure. So that really diminishes the risk, Frank. And then if you stick to that script and you have notes and the supervisor has notes, you're still in a relatively low risk area. And then anything beyond that, like there's always questions. So you leave firm A, you go to firm B, and you have your 100 most important households or however many it is, and you're dialing, you're making these announcement phone calls. People are asking, can they follow you? You hand them off to the appropriate assistant on the transition team, and you're processing it, and then you call someone, and they don't answer. So you have to make a decision. Are you going to make an announcement voicemail? Or are you going to wait and call them back another time? And I think the accepted status in the industry is you get one shot at this. You can't call multiple times. So you have to make that decision and you should have that planned out in advance. And I think most people would rather not do it via voicemail. As soon as they don't answer, you hang up and you schedule another time for a call. So I don't think it's a question back to the beginning, Frank, of what's best. It's measuring your risk. So An email and an announcement can't be misconstrued. They say exactly what they say. Phone calls, people could allege, oh, there was solicitation and they'll offer as evidence that there must have been a solicitation that 80% of the clients have transferred. That's not real evidence. It's an argument, but it's not evidence. And so what you want to do is minimize your risk by having an organized, well-thought-out plan. Yeah, and I think that the biggest part of that, which I advise our clients on, is if you leave a voicemail message, that's considered your announcement and you can't call back twice. And so just be really careful about that. But I do think having the firm's perspective on it as well as, which is my advice all the time, if you're concerned about any type of restrictive covenants that you have in your agreement, even though the firm that you're going to might have representation for you, they should still use their own counsel, whether it's you or or somebody else. And I say somebody else, not like your buddy who was a municipal court attorney does real estate and he thinks he understands securities law, that's not who you want. You know, you want someone that knows the firms that you're working with because they know how they operate. They know what's going to be acceptable, what's not. And you know how each firm operates and what they're willing to tolerate and what they're not willing to tolerate. Right. That's really, it's so important. Either you do this a lot or you don't do it at all as a lawyer. This is not an area where you can kind of dabble and represent two or three advisors a year. Either you do dozens or you don't, because it is so focused and it is relationship-based. And there's so many new players in this industry. By way of example, Rockefeller was created not so long ago. They've been recruiting some very big teams. And I've done half a dozen Rockefeller moves in the last year and a half, say. So now I know what they'll tolerate. And so there's no learning curve there. And the same thing's true with even all the wirehouses. I mean, you look at UBS, they left the protocol. Morgan Stanley left the protocol. You have to know they're both recruiting and they're recruiting heavily and successfully. So there's the conduct that they'll tolerate when they hire has to be consistent with the conduct that they'll tolerate when advisors leave there. And you have to know that. And the better practitioners, myself and my competitors who are really good, we all know that. 
And so to your point of hire a lawyer, but hire someone who does this, I'm never upset if someone calls, interviews me and is considering hiring me. And then they go and they hire one of my high quality competitors. That's fine. But when I hear like they hired their brother-in-law, to your point, who specializes in DWI and criminal defense, I shudder because I know that guy's out of his comfort zone. He probably got pressured because he's the brother-in-law to take it. And he's learned the curve is so steep. It's awful. Look, for most advisors, these agreements, this transition is the largest financial transaction you're going to be involved in. Usually the value of them exceeds the value of your home by multiples. And you hired a lawyer for your closing. Why wouldn't you hire a lawyer for this? It's incredibly important. And the litigation risk, while generally low, if you are the person that is made the example of and you find yourself hit with a TRO, the legal fees at the end of one month are generally six figures. So the money spent avoiding litigation and lowering your risk is well spent. Yeah. Well, this is great. I, I really wanted to cover this one particular topic because I think there are some other topics that we can really, I mean, look, we can talk about all these topics for hours. And I just think it's really important because like you said, it is your most, aside from your family and maybe your house, it's your most valuable asset. And for a lot of the large practices, it's actually more valuable than than their homes. And you, this is, you only do this one time and to do it wrong can really have some major, major impact on you and your family. And so it's really just important to get ahead of these things and be smart about it. And people hire, like you said, they hire an attorney to get them out of a traffic ticket or to do a closing on their house. They should have one for this also. So I appreciate you covering this topic for our listeners. Again, Brian has been doing this a long time. Brian, what's the best way for them to contact you if they wanted to reach out to you? Yeah. I mean, anyone that wants a consultation, please just call our office and we're easily found on the internet, Lax and Neville. Just call and ask whoever answers that day to schedule a call with Brian and we'll set up a call. And as I've told you, Frank, any of your clients, anyone interested, we give uh, at least a half an hour, usually is more as a free consultation. And this is what we do. Lax and Neville represents financial advisors in transitions and regulatory matters and investigations, you name it. We're a very focused law firm with a narrow specialization. Got it. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Great advice. I hope it was uh, great for our audience. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcasts. Podcasts.